to thank everybody. I'm sorry I'm running behind, uh, but let's get started. MJ Peterson is professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I think many of us have read a lot of her work. She's published things like the UN General Assembly, International Regimes for the Final Frontier, Recognition of Governments, Legal Doctrine, State Practice, Managing the Frozen South, and so on. Her main interests have been understanding the conditions that facilitate or inhibit international cooperation among states, among states and non-state actors, and among non-state actors themselves. She's been president of the <coughs> New England Political Science Association and the Council of American Society of International Law. She's a member of the editorial board of Global Governance and editor of the journal called Polity. Uh, she's currently a visiting professor at the University of Chicago and a friend of a number of us, so it's really great to have M.J. Peterson here. Thank, Thank you. you. We look forward to this. Okay. It gives, me, it gives me the green light, so now I'm allowed to start. I think. Is it working? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's good. That's fine. There's, there's a light here. I've known about the Mershon Center for years, or do you actually pronounce it Mershon? I never get these things right. And so it is actually quite a thrill to come down here and uh, run, run a, new, a new project by you. It's rough around the edges, although it was rougher last week in Chicago, but I put it through the mill there and got a lot of good suggestions, and I'm sure I will get equally good suggestions down here. Uh, Columbus last night did remind me of Boston. You can't get there from here. The streets are all over the place. The little signs that tell you where Route 315 is are not always too clear about whether it's north or south. But that was fun because it gave me a chance to tour downtown Columbus, which it actually is a lot more city than I thought one would find in this part of Ohio because I'm your total coastal snob. So you have contributed to the education of a coastal snob. Anyway, what I want to do today is talk about the authority of intergovernmental organizations. And this is part of a wider set of inquiries I'm doing in the, the workings of authority in international relations more generally. Now, obviously, this raises a couple of questions, the first one being, well, just what is authority? Okay. I have to figure out which one of the toys actually works the slides. Sorry about that. I'm defining authority as a relation among actors. The actors are pursuing a shared goal. Some of the actors are allocated the role of authority holders who issue the instructions. Others are the addressees, the followers, and they're basically supposed to follow the instructions, do what they're told, and if they do what they're told, the common purpose is fulfilled. Now, I'm remaining agnostic about who defines the common purpose because there are two very different stories about authority. One is that authority is created top-down. A bunch of powerful characters get together. They impose on everybody else. This is the Margaret Levy stationary bandits origins of governments in bands of thieves kinds of literature. But there is also a top-up story. 
that says that individuals seeking to attain something realize they would do better if they could coordinate their action. But there's no automatic coordination. It's not like they're on the New Haven Railroad heading for New York City and their, their other friends are on the Harlem Railroad heading into New York City and they all know that the best place to meet is under the clock in Grand Central Station because they're all going to be filtered into Grand Central Station. So they need somebody to tell them what to do. And so in this bottom-up version of authority, the authority and the role of giving instructions is created by the addressees. Now, this obviously is a minor literature, but I think you can see the relevance for international relations. Now, so as I say, you could acquire the authority holder role through power. You could also acquire it through expertise. You know more about the subject than somebody else. There are times when authority holders acquire their authority as moral authority. They're exemplars of high ethical behavior. This is responded to by others. I don't think organizations get there. And then what I'm going to call, at least for now, fiduciary. You're given authority to act on behalf of others. So this is the bottom-up story. Hey, we need an instruction holder. We're going to delegate this to you, and we're going to follow instructions. If you look at international organizations, they don't have much power. In fact, they're always looking around for, for things. Uh, as one early Russian foreign minister put it, it's really hard to act like a great power when you're always asking for loans. And certainly that is the problem of the average intergovernmental organization. They're short of cash, they're short of people. Expertise they can develop. So they can come up with claims to authority out of expertise. Moral, eh. fiduciary. Here is the rational choice story of delegation. Member states get together, decide they want to do something, establish an organization as a way to coordinate doing whatever it is they're doing. Now, the next question, what is an authority relation? Now, I'm doing something here that I'll get into trouble for. Social scientists like things simple. Keep it simple, stupid, is the mantra of social science. And simple usually means don't have more than two elements. Well, here's element number one. If you're looking at the mutual expectations between an authority holder and the addressees, there's a notion of how the authority holder is selected. What's the process? What are the qualifications for becoming the authority holder? There's a notion of procedure. What is the method and form of instructing? You as an addressee want to know not only is the right person issuing the instructions, but are they doing it on the job? Are they on the clock or off the clock? When they're on the clock, it's an instruction. When they're off the clock, it's just gossip, fooling around. There's also a notion of who are the addressees? Who are the ones who are expected to follow the instructions? In terms of the addressees as a group, but it might also be a subgroup. The goal. There does need to be agreement on what is the goal? What is it that we're doing? 
The area is a word I use for the substantive domains of action that are covered by the instructions. So if the UN Security Council invokes Chapter 7, it's saying, well, we may need you to do military stuff, we may need you to do some economic stuff, but they're not telling you to change your religion, go to unicameral legislature. So there's a sense in which there are domains in which the UN Security Council invoking Chapter 7 may issue instructions to member states. And there are other areas where those instructions don't apply and the, and the member states would totally ignore it and the Security Council would be embarrassing itself by trying to issue instructions in those areas. Relevance is another sort of name I came up with to distinguish between the instructions given that actually are focused on the goal versus authority holder abuse of position to get addressees to do something that's good for the authority holder. This, as you can imagine, is a problem in a lot of authority relationships. I've been studying this a lot by reading the Chicago Tribune. The Resgo trial is a uh, wonderful set of data. And then finally, efficacy. If we follow the instructions, will we actually get to the goal? Now, I should note, note here that this seven uh, criteria complex solution, I, I drew from an idea by Michael Bales, who is a philosopher who deals in authority. And since he is a philosopher, he is unintimidated by social science rules of keep it simple. Now, if anybody has any suggestions about how to make this simpler, I'll be very happy to think about them, because I realize that asking people to keep track of seven criteria is very challenging. The reason I'm doing it for now is I think it's useful. I think it's going to help us understand the workings of authority. I don't think we're going to understand authority in international relations until we have a better idea of how it actually works. And most of the discussion of the concept has been very abstract. And I like to get back down on the ground and dig around and go through the cornfields and go through the mountains and go through the seashore and see what's going on. Now, is there authority in international relations? Are there social relationships where some actors have a right to instruct and others accept that they have a task of following the instructions? That is the $64 billion question. And I'm going to ignore it by taking up the one area of international relations where it's most obvious that authority relations exist with intergovernmental organizations because they are founded in this story of delegation. So if you were hoping for a grand philosophical disquisition on, yes, authority exists in international relations, sorry, guys. Back to the ground. Addressees and authority holders are in a relation. Authority holder issues instructions. The addressees may comply, do what they're told. That's what the authority holders would like. But the addressees might push back a bit and say, wait a minute. They might complain. They might evade. Yeah, I know I was told to do that, but I don't really feel like it, so I think I'm just going to stay here. They may out and out not comply. That usually happens if they can't evade. But another thing they might do, which I think is captured partly in uh, 
Albert Hirschman's notion of exit is find an alternate route to what they want to do. I don't really want to have to follow this instruction, but I do want to get over there. Eh, well, I'll go this way. And then finally, you've got go outside the authority relationship altogether. Say, I'm just going to overturn this. So here I'm treating alternate route as still within the relationship. It's not an effort to destroy it completely. It's simply an effort to say, I just don't want to deal with this part of it. I'm out of here. And I've just figured out how I can go. Although certainly, if all of the addressees are taking alternate routes, the authority holders don't have too many people following instructions anymore, and that's probably a significant problem. Now, authority holders meeting with pushback can ignore it. And if it's verbal complaint, they probably will. Oh, they're grumbling, but that's not too serious. They might insist, come on, guys, we gave you an instruction, follow it. Now, they might, however, adjust. They might say, okay, the complaints we're getting, the evasion, the noncompliance, the, the seeking of alternate routes is a signal to us that the authority relation is not working. And if we want to maintain ourselves as authority holders, we've got to adjust the relation. Go back and adjust the terms, change the procedures, change the areas we're working in, change the policy we're following so that the addressees think that it's more efficacious. Knock off on asking the addressees to go get us coffee, whatever it might be. So what I want to do is take this notion of authority briefly through two intergovernmental organizations that are often regarded as very controlling, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And after a short run through a highly abstract account of some data, I then want to come back and say what does looking at authority as a relation with both going back and forth with these seven criteria give us that helps us understand what's going on. So here's the IMF, basic stories, right? Members of the IMF delegate certain functions to the IMF. The IMF, in doing those functions, instructs member states. That's your basic principal agent kind of thing, delegation kind of thing. You then have story two, which I'm calling capitalist tool. The capitalist powers create the IMF, and the IMF then bosses around the global south and all the non-capitalists. And the IMF then is a very important part of maintaining a neoliberal world order, which all right-thinking progressives totally hate. Now, this is schematic. Don't take the scale on this too literal, too literally. But this is my sense of erosion of IMF authority over time. Now, notice my start date is 1958. The IMF is created in 1944, but in fact doesn't have anything to do until everybody moves to convertible currencies at fixed exchange rates, and that's not until 1958, because everybody agreed, hey, we can't follow these rules yet. We've got to deal with post-war reconstruction. And everybody goes, ah, that's cool. Notice what happens. Almost immediately, you get the general agreements to borrow. These are deals among the leading Western industrial states that when they run into balance of payments problems, they'll borrow from each other. 
not from the IMF. A lot of this had to do with each of them had more money. The IMF was limited in how much money it had by the quotas. But notice that the rich countries take themselves out of the scheme. We don't have to borrow from you, so we're not going to have to listen to the conditions you want to put on any loans. Thank you, good night. Well, then you get, and you'll notice that I don't put a bottom on the arrow. When Nixon closed the gold window and broke the link between the dollar and gold, this was the foundation point of the fixed exchange rate system. You take the foundation point out, the whole thing collapses. There were efforts to put it back together. They failed. These efforts are going on between 1971 and 1973. If you're old enough to remember, 1973 is the first oil crisis that really puts the global economy into chaos. That's probably not a good time to be negotiating a new monetary regime. So everybody goes, ah, let's just do floating rates. Now, if everybody's going to do floating rates, what does something like the IMF, which is supposed to help countries maintain stable exchange rates, do? Well, according to a lot of people at the time, fold up, go away, go home. But those very negotiations that messed up the IMF's original function gave it a separate function. Because you now had a bunch of developing countries who had serious balance of payments problems because OPEC insisted on being paid in dollars. They did not want Brazilian cruzeiros. They did not want South Korean won. They did not want Indonesian whatever. They wanted dollars. These countries had to get dollars. That meant they had to be on exchange markets. So the IMF got a new job in helping recycle the petrodollars into loans to countries with bad exchange rates. And that function continues in the 1980s debt crisis. And I'm not going to go into how that started, just trust me. I've put some ups and downs there to sort of indicate the arguments about conditionality on IMF loans. Because the IMF would insist on various policy conditions, the borrowers would push back, and depending on how tough the IMF was going to be, either the conditions were enforced or they were not. You then get to the Asian crisis. And there's general consensus among policymakers and almost all economists that the IMF gave a bunch of bad advice to the Asian countries and probably made things worse. So that's not going to help the IMF be a big monetary policy expert, is it? Let's think about what the addressees were doing. General agreements to borrow are a bunch of the addressees deciding, hey, we just found an alternate route. We're, we're getting off this highway and going over here. So the IMF can say, yeah, it's my way or the highway, and they can say, yeah, we just found one. I call 1971 through 73 a partial overturn, but that's because I'm looking at it from the end of the story, it looked like complete overturn. You then, after things got put back together, with the IMF now focused very much on developing countries, and this is important, you get a lot of criticism and you get 
The developing countries looking for alternate routes and finding them at various times, any time they can get loans from commercial banks, which they could do in the 70s, which they could do again in the mid-90s, and which they have been able to do again since about 2001. And more and more of the wealthier developing countries, the middle-income countries, the Indias, the Pakistans, the Indonesias, the Nigerias, the uh, Mexicos, the, the Paraguays even, are doing that. They're not going to the IMF for loans. They are borrowing on commercial markets. Now, this tells us then that we need to revise the IMF story. The members created the IMF, but very quickly became clear that the IMF could make suggestions to industrial countries. It could still issue instructions to developing countries, but how well those instructions took depended on the situation. If a developing country doesn't need loans, there's no opportunity for the IMF to instruct it on anything. If a developing country can find another lender, that also limits IMF opportunities. Uh, there's an error on this one. The third one should, should read, the developing state, no, that's correct. The developing state is not important in the world economy. The IMF can pressure it. If it's important to the world economy, its economic buddies will start lining up with it against the IMF. Which is then related to the fourth. IMF has more trouble pressuring a country if it has patrons. And the patrons will say, hey, you know, don't be so tough on them. And then the fifth, and this you've really got to get down into the nitty-gritty, but it is coming out in the more recent literature. If there's a faction in the particular government that wants to adopt policies that they know the IMF will tell them to do, they will go and get IMF policy advice in an effort to buttress themselves against their domestic opponents. Now, how well this works obviously depends on whether IMF has become one of the local cuss words. In countries where I, the mere mention of IMF causes riots, this doesn't work too well. But in other countries, it is a way for the economists who are affiliated with the finance ministry to have arguments with all the economists affiliated with the spending ministries about what economic policy should be. Now, the IMF itself has tried to respond to the losses. It's tried to present its board of governors and its executive directors as a global alternative to the industrial countries talking alone by themselves. And this was actually very successful in the 70s. The industrial countries were negotiating about a new international monetary system, and the IMF did succeed in getting negotiations put back into the IMF. And this is very much at the behest of the developing states, the managing director at the time, and ultimately Britain and the United States, who were not getting what they wanted in the industrial state negotiations because of the French and the Germans. So the IMF caught a wave on that. What we see in the 1970s is basically the IMF moves into development-related lending. The loans get somewhat longer in duration, they get pre-planned and committed in advance, and more and more of what the IMF is doing gets 
caught up in the whole problem of economic development. And this is going to have implications. It's no longer maintaining stability of the international monetary system. It's maintaining a stable international monetary system plus fostering economic development for developing countries. And then more recently, starts in 74, it's become more assertive since, an effort to provide monetary policy advice to all countries, these annual consultations that the IMF has with every country. Now let's look at the World Bank you will notice a certain similarity of the standard stories. Delegation, capitalist tool. But let's look at the World Bank in more detail. The IMF pretty, does lend out its own money. The World Bank does not. And that makes for an important difference because it makes the World Bank an intermediary rather than a fiduciary, or an expert, although it does both of those too. So on bank loans, the things that go to the more prosperous countries, they're now running about 3.5%, the World Bank sells bonds to investors at a good credit rating. World Bank has a AAA credit rating, has had since the early 1950s, worked very hard to get it. The bank then relends to developing states who would not be able to borrow on the commercial market at anywhere near the interest rate. Now, the World Bank does add a charge. It doesn't pass along the exact same interest rate. It's got to protect itself against risks. It's got costs. So there is an interest premium. But the countries that are closed out of commercial loan markets are willing to pay the premium because otherwise they don't get any loan. Now, IDA is the International Development Association, and these are credits. I'm calling them credits. They, you have to repay them, but they don't have interest. Bank loans have interest as well as repayment. Now, IDA was set up to expand bank lending. It was established in 1960 on a scheme where industrial countries would give the World Bank money to be put into IDA, and then those credits would be given to developing countries. So the bank has to go to the industrial countries, get money in a replenishment. Some of you may have seen the term IDA replenishment in the newspapers, so that it can then put these monies on. And this is going to be crucial to the relationship because the IMF is not dealing with its own resources, it's dealing with other people's resources. This means there are sensitivities on the creditor side that affect its abilities to be an authority holder. Now this, also rough and not necessarily to the same scale as the IMF graph. I'll, I'll try to work out the scale, but I only thought these up in the last couple of days, so I haven't gotten to that level of fineness. The World Bank really is up and running about 1955. It's still primarily lending to European countries for post-war reconstruction. IDA is added in 1960. That expands. Already, most of its activities going into the developing world. I'm putting the peak at 1969. This is a little after Robert McNamara of Vietnam War fame 
became president of the World Bank. And McNamara brought to the World Bank many of his same habits of management by numbers, keeping things on targets, believing the quantitative numbers. But he also brought a side of his personality to the World Bank that you would not have expected from somebody who had run Ford Motor Company and the U.S. Department of Defense. He got committed to development. And he got committed to the notion that the original ideas of development were inadequate and that the World Bank needed to do more than fund particular projects. So to remind us all of that, I've put poverty alleviation because that was McNamara, one of McNamara's slogans. We really need to be into alleviating poverty. How that worked with elimination, I'm not sure, but he was very clear that poverty of itself is a problem and needs to be addressed directly. It's not going to simply go away through economic projects. Now, we move downward toward the 1980s because you've got huge arguments in the 1980s about conditionality on bank loans because the World Bank starts telling countries not only things about, you know, make sure that the, all the money goes to the project, keep your accounts, make your payments on time, uh, hire approved contractors. It starts making policy conditions. And in fact, some of the policy conditions look rather much like what the IMF is trying to do. And this triggers huge arguments with the borrower countries about those conditions. Why do we have to follow all those conditions? And I've put some wiggles into it. I could have put some more in, but I'm not good enough at PowerPoint to draw lines in less than about five minutes, so there's a real cutoff between how many wiggles I'm going to put in a graph and uh, how much time I have available. So as you can see, I didn't allocate much time. This, you come out of that, but then you run right into all of the campaigns by non-governmental organizations, the environmental groups, the development groups, the anti-globalization movement, they all pile on the World Bank. They pile on the IMF as well, but it has much more reverberation for the World Bank for reasons I'll get into. And then you get down into the 2000s, where basically the IMF, I'm sorry, the World Bank right now has a disbursement crisis. They're getting a lot of money repaid in old loans, but they don't have very many new borrowers to recycle that money to. And this is beginning to become an item of a fair amount of ironic third world comment about, you know, we have now put into the bank more than the industrial countries have. Why do they have most of the votes? Okay, so... For the World Bank, then, you could have the creditors be upset or you could have the borrowers be upset. And I'm going to focus on the borrowers here. As you can see, in the mid to late 70s, a lot of the borrowers can borrow on the commercial market so they don't come to the World Bank for loans. The countries that are getting IDA credits, they're the poor countries. They can't borrow internationally, so they... The World Bank is, you know, one of the few things they've got. They go to IDA, they get their credits. 
you then get this challenge in the 1990s, basically to the efficacy of what the World Bank was doing. Your, your, your programs aren't doing that well on development. Oh, and besides that, they're environmental disasters. You've been ignoring massive corruption. You know, 1997, these news stories come out about how for over 30 years, various corrupt Indonesian officials had been siphoning off money from World Bank projects, something like 30% of the total. And this had been going on for three decades. And so there was a separate uh, hue and cry about that. Following year, there were stories that various Russians were doing the same thing, Russia being uh, the wild east of corruption at the time, as opposed to the American wild west. So these third actors come into play. And they start complaining and criticizing, and we're going to see in a minute what happens with this. And then finally, since 2000, more and more of the developing countries can borrow on commercial markets again. Interest rates are lower. Lenders have money, and basically very, very few middle-income countries are borrowing from the World Bank anymore. So what is the revised story? On bank loans, the revised story is that investors and developing states are now interacting directly. They no longer need the intermediary. Bye-bye. We're out of here. You don't have to overturn it. You don't have to formally abolish the bank. You just deny it business. IDA credits is more interesting because the poorest developing countries, and I had to separate the I and the N because I had trouble with PowerPoint this morning, would not let me have two capital letters next to each other this morning. Yesterday it did. So I don't know what was going on. The industrial countries are the source of the money. The third parties get to the industrial countries. Remember, IDA has to be replenished. It has to be replenished every five years. Legislatures in developing, developed countries have to approve the appropriation. This means, among other things, you have to ask the U.S. Congress. Now, we all know exactly how much the U.S. Congress treasures the World Bank. Uh, Jesse Helms probably did want to shut it down. But while it was around and while they could beat up on it, well, if we could get it to pay attention to environment, that wouldn't be a bad thing. If we could get it to pay attention to accountability, transparency, and good governance, that wouldn't be a bad thing. So the third parties get to the U.S. Congress. The U.S. Congress starts adding riders and conditions to the appropriations for the IDA replenishments. And the World Bank has to swallow it if it wants the money. Now, it may be that in a few years they'll be able to get IDA replenishments without going through the U.S. Congress, but that was not true in 1990. It's not true today. So these third parties who were upset found a piece of the relationship where the authority holder, in fact, was vulnerable to an addressee. But it was a creditor addressee, not a borrower addressee. And that's why all these movements have been more effective with the World Bank than with IMF, because IMF does not have the same vulnerability. 
although the U.S. Congress tries to tell IMF to do things. Uh, that and a token get you on the tee in Boston. So what has the World Bank tried to do to respond to loss? Well, they've tried to accommodate the movements. They've tried to adopt environmental policies, environmental standards, the inspection panel. They're, they're trying now to move off of lending as their main activity into becoming the knowledge bank. This was uh, Wolfenson's mantra when he was president. This is running into problems, though, because there's a lot of contention about whether the World Bank really is an expert on development or not. It's really hard to claim that you are the expert when 15 other groups are saying you don't know what you're doing. This doesn't work too well. And then finally, if you look at the most recent World Bank reports, you notice that suddenly they're offering governments development-related consulting services. They've got this staff expertise that's developed over the years. They know countries. And so they're now trying to sort of spin themselves in some ways a multilateral consulting firm. They don't say it in those exact words in their reports, but it's a reasonable way to think about what's going on. If we look back to the seven criteria, what we notice is that the two areas where both the, the IMF and the World Bank have gotten into trouble with their addressees is on the question of area. What are the substantive activities that promote development? And on the question of efficacy, what exact set of instructions best promotes development? So let's look again. Area. What we've had over time is an expansion of the notions of what you have to do to have development. 1945 through 1960, everybody thought development was simple. You supply some external finance and some expertise, and they, they'll, go, they'll go and things will be great. You know, W.W. Rostow, stages of economic growth. Now, in the 1960s, everybody started laughing at that. Oh, you guys, your 50s modernization theory, you guys didn't know what you were talking about. It's much more complicated. It's not just a matter of external finance and outside experts, or even state planning. You need a set of social attitudes. You need a set of skills held by the population. So development is about education. Development is about poverty alleviation. Development is about certain social safety networks. I've put this in the 1980s, but it's running actually from the 1960s. It's the debate about how to have development. Should you have an inward policy where you foster domestic industry by identifying things that you're importing and encouraging local companies to produce those things? This is known formally as import substitution industrialization. Or should you look outward? Is the way to develop your industry, in fact, to develop industry in sectors where you can compete in other countries' markets? Export-led growth. If you want a region, this is Latin America versus East Asia. 
You then get added to the mix in the 1980s environment. Oh, by the way, it probably would be a good idea to develop our economies without totally trashing the planet. Hmm. Hmm. Got to think about that. Now, 1990s. Central planning, extensive government operating of the economy goes out the window. It was going out the window before the Soviet bloc collapsed, before the Soviet Union collapsed. But certainly at the end of the Cold War, one lesson everybody takes away is central planning doesn't get you where you want to go. It doesn't keep you there either. So markets, transparency, accountability. But then you get, well, wait a minute. Markets left to their own devices still don't do important things. They don't touch poverty. So we still have that debate, and now we do have a desire on the part of a lot of people to eliminate poverty. It's not poverty alleviation anymore. It is poverty elimination, Millennium Development Goals. And so since roughly 1998, the debate is beyond the Washington Consensus. Now, Washington Consensus is you know, the catchphrase for the neoliberal heavily market-oriented policies supposedly offered by the IMF, the World Bank, and the U.S. Treasury. If you look, the World Bank is actually much less neoliberal than either the U.S. Treasury or the IMF. But the World Bank gets caught up in it because it gets tarred with the same brush. Guilt by association. The IMF and the World Bank have their meetings together every year which means that all the protesters glom into Washington at the same time, and they don't distinguish between the two targets. So this then summarizes the debate, the fund bank approach to development versus the challengers. As you can see, there were more challengers in the earlier period. You had advocates of central planning. Yeah, let's do the Soviet thing. Yeah, cool. You had advocates of what I'm calling Fabian socialism, that is the movement in Britain, people who weren't necessarily for central planning but thought that there did need to be a lot more state involvement in running the economy. It's the European mixed economy model. And I'm calling it Fabian socialism simply because the size of the British Empire meant that it was Fabian socialist ideas that most frequently diffused to elites in the third world, especially to India. And India became a separate source for development ideas. So you had the Indian Fabian socialists and the Latin American dependency theorists as the main source of different ideas, and very different ideas, in the 1970s, 1980s. 1990, Market economics is the only game in town, but there are different ways of doing it. You can do the neoliberal thing, yeah, but you can do the Asian model, the developmental state. You can do the development as capabilities, the approach of the Human Development Report. Mahbub uh, al-Haq, hired by UN Development Program to cook it up, and then other people took it and ran with it, Amartya Sen and the Human Capacities Approach. Another development is simply a catchphrase I'm using for all the anti-globalization movements who are not always particularly clear about what they want. They know what stinks. They have visions of what they want, but they're not too, always too good on the how do you get there from here. 
Now, this is just a reminder. Here's the IMF loss of authority, and as you can see, a lot of it tracks with the development story because of the way the IMF got involved with development. There's the World Bank. What then does all of this tell us about the working of authority in international relations? Well, it reminds us that the authority relationship has two sets of actors and lots of different arrows of interaction. The authorities send instructions, give instructions to the addressees. The addressees respond. The authority holders then have to respond. So it's a back and forth. And sometimes it seems to me that in some of the literature in IR where people are trying to summarize a lot of activity in a very short space, the back and forth gets a little lost. The other thing that comes out of this, recall the standard delegation story, members delegate to the organization which instructs the members. On the instruction side, the members disaggregate again. It's individual members get instructions and individual members react. And so you may have some coalition of members who are unhappy, others who are not. And this is part of what makes, makes running an international organization such a lovely career challenge. I think we get a better handle on the World Bank and the IMF that their claims to authority really do rest on a combination of gatekeeping. You can't get the loan unless you meet the conditions. And ex staff expertise. There is actually a good deal of expertise here, and smart countries have figured out how to tap into it, even when they are resisting policy conditions. Now, gatekeeping is fine, but that assumes everybody's coming along your route. If everybody goes by another route, gatekeeping becomes unimportant. So one thing we might want to do is think about international organizations, if they serve as pass-throughs for resources, their authority is not necessarily fiduciary or delegation, it's gatekeeping. And if everybody goes on another road, the gatekeeping is over. Another thing we learn out of this, and this simply confirms what people have known, but I think it confirms it vividly, that if there's no agreement on the areas of activity you need to be working in, and if there's no agreement on what is or is not an effective way to get to your goal, it's really hard to claim to be an expert. You're simply one of multiple experts out there. How can you defend your claim? Well, the way the World Bank and the IMF have done it is simply by running the single largest research shops in the world on their particular topics. The IMF has more monetary economists in one place than anybody else, including the U.S. Treasury. The World Bank has more development economists in one place than anybody else. Now, when area and efficacy criteria are challenged, smaller groups, University of Sussex, Geneva, Chicago on, it, on the other side, University of Chile, UN Commission on uh, Trade and Development, can come up with ideas and put them out there and challenge your large research engines. We get some reminders about authority. 
that an authority relationship operates within a context, a social context built up of material elements and ideational elements. The contentions over what is development broadened the missions of both the IMF and the World Bank. Actually, with the World Bank to the point that many people in the late 90s were saying, this thing has lost a sense of mission. It has no coherence, whatever, at the same time that it's losing gatekeeping functions. Sometimes third actors are important. An authority relation most immediately involves the authority holder and the addressees, but sometimes people who are not involved get concerned. Yeah, so E.E. E. Schatzneider was right. Politics occurs before an audience, and sometimes the audience gets drawn in. You may have turbulence in your authority relationship from another authority relationship, especially if the same addressees are in both. Now, we're familiar with this in domestic politics. We're not familiar with it when we think about the nation-state level, when we think about, you know, United States versus France or Russia versus China. Everybody assumes that the addressees of China, the Chinese nationals, respond to the Chinese authorities, and that's the only authority relation they're in. But if we look at the World Bank at times has been used to challenge the IMF. Remember I said that the World Bank economists were not quite as neoliberal as the IMF ones. And there have been times when the IMF has made statements critiquing, I'm sorry, the World Bank has made statements critiquing IMF. And this sometimes poses some difficulties because at the very least they've got to answer them back. I'll leave it there. Okay. Uh, that's it. I welcome questions, comments. Uh. Yeah. And, and therefore, how could the external actors criticize the IOs on those uh, Nothing stops a mouthy external actor. <laughs> yeah, let's be real. The area and efficacy, yeah, one of the things that I discovered in doing this, you know, I developed the framework abstractly in the fall, and I spent the spring saying, okay, let's take this contraption and apply it to something and see whether it works. And it's got a, few bro it's got a number of broken teeth. And here I think, and, and the draft is not as good as it should be in complaining, you're, you're, you're quite right that the expansion of 
area did not come from the organizations themselves. It came partly from development economists thinking about the issue and then on environment from these social movements and NGOs. Certainly, there are, we know that international organizations often do engage in task expansion. They will take on mandates because this is a way to get more resources, to have some more authority to do things. Certainly, as I look at the World Bank under McNamara, it eagerly took on this new agenda. The, the IMF came along more slowly. And the way to critique the IMF about what it's doing or not doing is, as, as has been done on, on the right in particular, is to say the, the IMF has no business being in development-related lending. Most of its current loans are really development-related. They're not exchange rate-related. And the IMF should go back to its original business. Even if you think that the IMF should deploy its exchange rate assistance in a way that helps development, you can then continue the critique that your standard IMF conditions do not help meet the Millennium Development Goals or do some other thing. And you know, thanks for the opportunity on this, because the Millennium Development Goals, it seems to me, put the debate in a qualitatively different way than had been done before. The Millennium Development Goals are very unusual for the United Nations because what they, what they did in the resolution was not only stated a goal, but stated a time frame and a criterion for measuring success. This is not something that UN General Assembly resolutions or UN conference resolutions have usually been good at. And it comes directly out of the approach of the Human Development Report. So you now suddenly got these statements, we're going to have urban poverty by 2015. We're going to, so you now have a set of criteria that on area and on efficacy that have bite where you as a government, where you as the organization itself, where you as a third party can say, hey, you're either on track or you're not on track. And you can go country by country on it. So you're right that this doesn't, that a lot of these area expansions did not come from the organizations themselves. They came from outside. They were adopted into the organizations. And one of the interesting discussions of the World Bank in the later 90s was the World Bank was an organization that had lost its way because it had taken on so many tasks and was moving in so many different directions that it couldn't do anything right. Similar debate with the IMF. So you're right that I have not made quite clear enough exactly where these things are coming from. And a lot of it is back in that ideational context. There are these sea changes in, in ideas about what development is that are very broadly held. Now, there's still argument. You can say development requires social policy, development requires education. You can still argue about whether you want to be market-oriented, Fabian socialist, or Leninist. Okay, I think you had another question.
You end the relationship. Right, but then you lose all you lose all the benefits that you get from the relationship. Yeah, but yeah, but if you're well, that's well, that's why I suspect that addressees don't overturn it too often. I um, I I was I was not fully happy with using the word fiduciary. I wanted I wanted to use it because I didn't want to use delegation. Okay, why didn't you? Because that's what I was thinking. It sounded like. It it sounds it sounds it sounds a lot like delegation, and I probably need to think through more finely than I have the, the full implications. I think I ended up with it here because this is about finance and my brain was just sort of too economic soaked for my own good. I'm not an economist and so sometimes it will get too economics soaked for my own good. Anybody got any other words? <laughs> Well, I'm I'm going backward. Okay. It, okay, the IMF itself, yeah, the IMF itself do, does want to exercise authority. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going on a sort of basic assumption that authority holders like issuing instructions. And the IMF is, is, is created to issue instructions in a variety of ways. This has been the main one. Now, the IMF itself did not develop this list. This list comes out of the results of recent social science research into when countries go to the IMF for loans. And so, although I suspect by now the IMF economists have read the literature and they could probably develop a, what is the likelihood if we impose tough conditionality on this country that they'll swallow and take the loan? That, in fact, has reduced what you, what you find. And I didn't didn't explain this quite well enough because I was trying to keep the talk within a manageable time frame. One of the one of the ways that you get the IMF to back off on conditionality is as more countries start getting loans elsewhere. 
the IMF realizes that, oh, our loans are not very attractive. And the IMF needs to make loans. And it needs to make loans for somewhat of the same reason that the World Bank does. It does earn payments on its loans. So that is a revenue stream, and that's how it gets money. And that's how the IMF can be independent of replenishment. So if a lot of countries start taking the alternate route instead of getting on the IMF interstate, the IMF's got to lower the tolls. It, tur- it, it has turned down loans. Um, so in this way, it's saying I but this you, yeah, but n- well, right. it, uh, that depends on that depends on the circumstances in which the loan uh, application is turned down. If the loan application is turned down first time through, but if the loan application is turned down after there's been a bunch of negotiating and the uh, would-be borrower says, I'm not accepting any of those stinking conditions, then, that, that, then that's different. That's, that's an effort that, uh, that fails because the recipient is pushing back so hard that the IMF says, well, if you don't want to take the conditions, you're not going to get the loan, and the recipient walks. But notice that we've gone back and forth a couple of times. I actually have not gone through the data on every single IMF loan to look at when an, when an IF, IMF loan was proposed. What happened? And in part, that is because the IMF itself does not propose loans. The initial proposal comes from the member. So you would have to get at, well, were there times when members needed money and didn't go to the IMF? And actually, some of those are documented. And, 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 and the economists who have been doing this can, can show you that, well, this is a country that had conditions under which the IMF has lent money, but it didn't ask for any loans. There is, there is even one piece of this literature that argues that there are a few countries that have asked for, for IMF loans, even though they really didn't need them, to get back to, let's see if I can, oops, I don't know how that happened, sorry. Uh, uh, now I forget what it was I was looking for. Oh, well. <sighs> My clumsy. But now I remember what, el- what else I was doing. Um, oh, I know what it was. Uh, let's see. Nope. Here's factions wanting inside, uh, wanting IMF instructions. There are a couple of cases of countries where you had an economic reformist faction. 
They were dealing with people who didn't want to open up the market, didn't want to drop the export-led policy, didn't want to keep all of the total boat anchor, not just the good state-owned enterprises, but the total boat anchor ones. And so these guys would, typically they're in the, the Treasury, they would apply for an IMF loan to get the set of conditions and have those as things that they could hold over their college or, hey, we've got to do this because we've got to get the next payment on the loan. And if you're inter interested in, in, in that sort of thing, uh, uh, a certain amount of the work by James Raymond Vreeland go, goes, has done this research. And I've got another citation in there to Vreeland and somebody else who's also done it. There, there, is, there is actually a fair amount of research on this but I haven't, I haven't collected all the data to substantiate this particular point. Anything else? Yeah. Jennifer, you've got... No, I'm sorry, you. Um, oh, just uh, to follow on Alex's second question, um, it seems like you say it here, but you might maybe go more explicitly uh, Right. Where the suspicious story comes in, but over time, um, the, the client states uh, were not the ones who conferred that initial authority, but they somehow get included under this umbrella of international yep. the, or world. Yeah, the. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the tougher piece of that story is not necessarily the, the origin, although the IMF it is. The IMF, there was a clear notion that countries over time would sometimes be creditors, sometimes be debtors. Uh, that turned out not to work out. You tend to work out to have a number of countries who were persistent in running balance of payment surpluses. You had others who were persistent in deficit. So, in one respect, you can say that the failure of Keynes's original design, because Keynes wanted the IMF structured in a way that both surplus and deficit countries would have to adjust, and the Americans would have nothing to do with it. So this is where power gets back into play. The original design of the IMF is pretty much set up by the Americans and the British, with everybody else sit, sitting around and making contributions, but the big design. And the British had the problem that, you know, they might have claimed, and there was a you know, funny little British jingle of the time, said Lord Halifax to Lord Keynes, they may have the money bags, but we have all the brains. That in 1945, what was rather important was who had the money. Or as one of the other Brits put it, when they ran into trouble with one of their draft proposals in Washington, cabled back home and said, this is Washington, repeat, Washington. Fig leaves that serve well on Threadneedle Street wither in the heat here. So with the IMF, there was already a subtle turning 
and it became morphed. Well, the World Bank, no. It was understood from the beginning that borrowers were a distinct subset of addressees. It was, after all, the International, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Only some countries had to reconstruct. Only some countries were then defined as eligible, you know, and there's a, a list of who's eligible. So, so in that, the, the, the difference, the difference was, was less sig significant. With the IMF, yeah, this becomes an, it could be a very interesting part of the story, how the IMF goes from the original ideas into the American, the deficit have to adjust, but there's no distinction in there between industrial versus developing. And in fact, if you look at, UN, at, at, at IMF documentation, you almost never find the words developing countries. The IMF has resisted, it makes the distinction in practice by how it defines eligibility criteria for a variety of its lending facilities, but you will not find it in any of the rules, you will not find it in the Articles of Agreement, because the IMF doesn't want to go there. It wants to see itself as dealing with an international monetary system, an international exchange rate regime. And the people who would like to see the IMF transit into becoming a global central bank, I think, prefer that you not distinguish among countries. Anyone else? Yeah. I guess this is a bit of a naive question. You may have preempted it by saying that you didn't want to talk about other authorities in English and more politics. But I guess when we think about the notion of authority, especially as a country of domestic um, the main axis of the, of the debate is about the legitimacy of authority. So whether it's simply coercive power being exercised so that I obey, or whether I have some moral obligation to obey. And so it's interesting that you kind of brush aside the moral aspect I've, okay. It's not a naive, naive question, and it legitimately opens up and it gives me an excuse to use my last slide. Authority is one way in which actors influence one another. They can do it through incentives. Now, this is, this, this, Power is a subset of incentives. When we think of power, we think of people applying coercion. That is, you, know, you don't do what I want you to do, I'm going to beat you up. Or they go and actually do the beating up. And I, f I find that problematic because there is equally power, equally efficacious ways of influencing people by buying them off, rewarding them. And so I use incentives as a general category, and I see coercion and reward as the subcategory. I get into lots of trouble with my IR friends about this. 
Then you have persuasion. You offer ideas and you get people to accept similar beliefs, whether these are beliefs about the way the world works or beliefs about what is morally right. Now, it seems to me that if we, if we think about social relationships, we can think about spot relationships. One interaction, it's not repeated. And then we can think about ongoing relationships. If we think about incentives and we think about persuasion, we can easily conceptualize these as having spot variations as well as ongoing variations. Authority is interesting because I was beating my brain over the weekend trying to think, is there such a thing as spot authority? Now, I could come up, I could come up with an example, but it was an example from Chicago. I mean the city, day-to-day -day life in the city. Uh, there's a traffic wreck, and there are plenty of them in Chicago every day. I mean, drivers are always doing something wicked stupid. Not quite as bad as Boston, but bad enough. And... Oftentimes, the cops don't get there right away, but there'll be some bystander who's, who sort of takes over as traffic manager, and other bystanders defer to this. Now, that person has no right to be a traffic cop, no moral claim, but goes out with and you know struts it and seems authoritative and is physically large enough to be seen, and people follow the instructions because they know they'll get through the traffic jam faster if they do. So that's the closest I could come up with. And this does come back to the morals. Because if authority is an ongoing relationship, the addressees do have to feel comfortable with it in some way. And this is where legitimacy comes into it. But what I'm trying to do, although I'm getting a lot of pushback on this, everybody says, MJ, you're going down the wrong route. Authority and legitimacy are so closely bound together that you cannot talk about them separately. But not all legitimacy is moral legitimacy either. So mor morality comes into it with more or less intensity, depending on what's going on. I think with development, morals come into it a lot, because the more you think about the day-to-day -day life of the poorest of the poor, the more you get morally cranked about why should some people have billions and billions and lots of luxury, and other people spend their entire lives in hovels with no medical care, no job, inadequate food. There is something there that offends the conscience. And so this is an area where the moral dimension will come into play. And when it does, actors who can capture that feeling and can use it either to buttress their own position or to criticize other actors, do have a powerful lever for influence. But you go over into the persuasion column, because what you're now trying to do is persuade the authority holders or the addressees that their authority relationship is not very good, that it ought to be gotten rid of, that it ought to be redefined. Moral claims are certainly one way that addressees could push back against an authority holder. There are ways an authority holder can respond to addressees. Well, wait a minute. If we do that, we'll be straying from the, the true path. Oh. So, yeah, you're right that in the talk, I pretty much ignored this. Because what I'm trying to do is get at a lot of other things that are going on. But it's not a naive question. It's a very important question. But I think what you'll find as you look around is that it, 
is strong in some areas, not so strong in others. But that's just me as a social scientist. I've got to call this to a close. <laughs> okay. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, MJ. It's been great to have you here. Well, thank you for your patience. If I ran over, my apologies. <laughs>